Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. This past week, we took a look at how the National Park Service grappled with segregation during the first half of the 20th century in Shenandoah National Park and other units of the National Park System. Rebecca Latson also explained how you can get some great photos of the North Cascades National Park Complex without hiking deep into the backcountry. We offered a quick primer on public lands and who manages them. You can find those and other stories flowing from the national parks at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, I chat with Lauren and Stephen Keyes about their seven-month road trip that took them to 61 national parks this year. It was quite an adventure and one I'm sure more than a few of us would like to repeat. We also take a look at how you can get the most from a visit to Joshua Tree National Park in California and raise the question of why the National Park Service is considering capital projects when its maintenance backlog is hovering around $12 billion. Who wouldn't want to take seven months off, pack your rig, and map out a road trip that takes you to 61 units of the national park system? I keep wanting to, but my wife's not so sure. But Lauren and Stephen Keyes, a young couple in their 20s, did just that earlier this year. They packed up their Nissan NV200, one of the smaller cargo vans on the market, and hit the road. Somehow they managed to squeeze a full-size bed in the back, which was probably a good thing to have on their 34,000-mile trek. Adding to the challenge of this epic odyssey was the partial government shutdown earlier this year that they navigated. To find out how they did this, what they enjoyed, what they didn't, and how they managed to afford it, we've invited Lauren and Stephen to join us today. Welcome. Hey, Kurt. Nice to be here. How's everything in Gainesville, Florida this morning? Raining. But otherwise good. (laughs) So what prompted you to... um, basically put uh, your, your working life on hold for seven months and, and take to the road? I mean, the general idea for this trip was just that uh, in the past, we've been to a few of the national parks and pretty much every time we've ever been to one, there's been zero disappointment. They're just amazing. And uh, we actually had one more long-term travel experience in the past where we went to Hawaii for six months. So we had sort of proven the model where we could make that happen. And we said, hey, why don't we try to see if we could complete the set of all the 61 national parks uh, in one shot? Let's give it a try. And then we start, started planning from there. I guess there was a lot of... Um pre-planning for this effort? I mean, you have to decide what order of parks you're going to hit, calculate your fuel costs, and uh, figure out how to uh, restock your your finances along the way, no? Yeah. So, you know, one of the first things that we did was, um, you know, try to look at, you know, first of all, where are all the parks on the map and what order would make sense. We knew that we needed to leave in January. Um, and obviously this was before the government shutdown. So we assumed we would just from Florida go straight west along the Southern border, um, before kind of zigzagging our way up the Western, um, parks into Alaska. But we tried to keep it pretty flexible. The only thing that we had planned out further than a couple of weeks in advance at any one point on the trip 
was Alaska um, due to the nature of getting to those parks. Um, some of them are so remote, you have to book uh, charter planes to fly into. And so, um, you know, that took a little bit of planning ahead of time. But most of the time, we were kind of on the fly, and that allowed us to be more agile when it came to the winter weather storms, um, the government shutdown, uh, and any other kind of glitches that uh, came up on the trip. So, you know, we did try to plan a few things out ahead of time. Obviously, we had to get the van, build out the back with the bed, you know, but that didn't take too much time. Literally, the back of the van was a bed on a platform that allowed us to have some storage. In terms of affordability, uh, a big part of it for us was making sure that we had a few different streams of income while we were on the road, um, one of it, which was renting out our condo uh, here in Gainesville. Why did you decide to leave in January? I actually have a full-time job uh, working for a tutoring company here locally, and our schedule sort of, you know, flows with the university's schedule. So basically, uh, I made an agreement with my employer that I'd be gone for exactly two semesters, a spring and a summer semester, and we thought it would be realistic to get the whole trip done over that time period and be back for fall. Well, that was very uh, courteous of your uh, employer to let you take that much time away. But obviously, it sounds like you did the smart thing in terms of running across uh, the southwest first, um, southern tier of the country to get it while the northern tier was uh, in snow and cold. Yeah, we still uh, ran into a few um, weather storms. Uh, You know, this this particular winter season was pretty rough for um, the west, even in areas where, uh, you know, they don't typically experience the amount of snowfall that happened this year. Um, And I remember... At one point, we were going to Mesa Verde in Colorado, and uh, we got to the visitor center and we said, "Okay, what do we need to know about this park? Like, tell us, you know, some of the best stuff to do." And um, the ranger said, "You can look around here and look at the museum, but nothing is plowed right now. You can't go up into the mountains or see any of the cliff dwellings right now." Um, and we were like, "Oh, well, when can we do that?" And they told us. Um, try again in April, which was, uh, you know, a good month or so away. So we had to backtrack quite a bit for that one. Yeah. I must say that we had a, um, what, what I like to refer to as a normal winter, um, here in the Rockies, um, the, the past decade or so, it's been kind of sparse on snowfall and cold. And, and this past winter was back to, um, normal, so to speak. And uh, it did delay a lot of openings um, to a lot of areas of national parks in, in the Rockies, for sure. And in fact, at, at Grand Teton National Park in Wyoming, they're still talking about there's there's still snow out there, and you have to be aware of it if you're hiking into the backcountry. You were, I believe, every three and a half days, you, you reached a new park? That's just an average, really. Um, some places we would only spend a day in and others we would be there for three or four days at a time. But yeah, on average, uh, we had about three and a half days per park if you do the seven months divided by the 61. And that includes some of that travel time as well. Yeah. I guess that was intentional because you had to fit it into your time frame, um, available time on the road. But I mean, that, that's that's kind of a, a moving a moving number in terms of how much time you spend in a park because you can get into some national parks and say, wow, this is a great place. And I want to spend, you know, four or five or six days exploring this place. Or you might get to a national park and say, well, I've seen it all. Um, I'm moving on. Is that pretty much the situation you were encountering? It definitely was. Um, you know, obviously how interested we were in the scenery had a lot to do with how long we would stay. But 
Um, one of our like main goals as photographers on this journey was to make sure that we came away from each national park with one image that we're really deeply proud of, something really spectacular. And so uh, aside from just like how much we felt like being there, uh, sometimes it would be like, did we get the shot yet? And so uh, that was kind of a motivator for staying longer in certain places or not. How did the, um, the, the partial government shutdown affect you or did it? Um, it did. Uh, at the beginning of our trip, we actually embarked on our journey during the government shutdown. Um, so the first several parks, I'm not sure quite how many, maybe five or so, maybe, maybe seven, ten. maybe 10. Yeah, mm-hmm. something like that. We couldn't visit any visitor centers during that time. So that was definitely a bummer. But for the most part, almost all parts of those parks were pretty much accessible to the public. Uh, There are a couple exceptions to that. For example, in Big Bend, there was a certain overlook that you couldn't get to that was very famous, and that was sort of a bummer too. And then the big one for us was Carlsbad Caverns was essentially completely closed during the shutdown because they couldn't let anyone down into the caverns as, as you get through there through the visitor center. So for that one, it was actually one of the first on our list, and we had to just skip right past it and wait for the shutdown to end. And by the time the shutdown ended, we were on the coast of California, and we had to drive all the way back to Carlsbad Caverns on the border between uh, New Mexico and Texas, which probably cost us an extra 20 hours or something like that of driving, but we did it. Wow. A lot of people probably would have just said, well, maybe next time. <laughs> Now, in in the parks that you visited during the shutdown, as um, we've reported, um, during the shutdown, there was um, a, a lack of park service staff there, and some parks um, encountered a lot of problem with visitors, frankly, and a problem with uh, a lack of garbage collection and restroom cleaning. Did you encounter any of that or any misbehavior by, by other visitors? You know, I, I think... Because we knew the visitor centers were closed during the shutdown, we tended to avoid them and made our own plans doing, you know, research from the um, park's websites before going. And so we weren't always in the the areas that might have been more populated. Personally, we didn't see much evidence of, you know, trash overflowing. But I, I do think that was the reason that the overlook in Big Bend was shut down is that there was so many people going there. And because it was an overlook, um, you know, it was more remote. And so anything that people left there got left there. Um, but, you know, when we went to uh, Joshua Tree, um, you know, it was around the time that there were reports of people cutting them down. And um, actually, we saw very few people in the park, surprisingly, and most of them were campers um, and not, you know, just kind of driving through being obnoxious or anything like that. I like to take a pretty optimistic outlook on what we saw. I mean, we didn't witness anyone abusing the parks in any way ourselves. We did read the news stories. And I I would even say it may have been, other than missing Carlsbad Caverns and having to drive a lot back, it may have actually been a positive for us in a short-term sense because I think a lot of people stayed home from the parks because they heard about the shutdown and Mm -hmm. we were able to experience a lot of solitude, uh, which is something that you go to the national parks for. So while the shutdown wasn't a good thing, uh, we got actually a little hidden benefit from it, I think. Yeah. Now, um, backtracking a little bit, financially, you said you rented out your condo while you went on the road. 
any any other revenue that you had coming in during the time? Did you pick up any day jobs or anything like that? Yes. So we had quite a few sources of income. The company I worked for full-time allowed me to go down to about 10 hours a week while we were gone. So I essentially had a part-time remote job. Lauren quit her job before we left, but about halfway through the trip, she picked up a freelance gig doing like marketing for a nonprofit organization. We both do photography. Um, Most of our money that we've made from photography in the past has been services like shooting weddings and portraits and stuff like that. And we were able to actually book quite a few photo shoots on the road um, through mostly through the magic of social media, uh, connecting with people who we had connections with across the country and even finding a couple strangers who booked us for things. Additionally, we opened up a fine art shop on our photography website to sell our photos from the national park. So that's fully open now. And we opened that about halfway through the trip too, which is really something we never did during, uh, our other photography business before this, but we opened that up on the trip too. And what website is that? Uh, you can find our artwork at keysphotography.com forward slash art. Okay. We've been talking today with Lauren and Stephen Keys, um, a young couple in their 20s who did what many of us would no doubt love to do. They took seven months off to uh, drive across the national park system, uh, hitting 61 units of the park system along the way. We're going to take a short break, and then we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at www.gtnpf.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. We're talking today with Lauren and Stephen Keyes, who earlier this year managed to take seven months off, uh, jump in their cargo van, and travel 34,000 miles throughout the national park system, uh, visiting 61 units of the the park system. Curious, did you run into any vehicle troubles along the way? Um, We actually got really lucky with that. Uh, We're very, I guess, money conscious generally. And so we've always bought like, used cars that tend to be sort of at the end of their lifespan just to avoid depreciation and stuff. But on this trip, we decided to splurge and we bought a $12,000 used van that was much newer and much more expensive than cars we're used to. And it did pay off. The reason why we did that was so we wouldn't hopefully run into any car trouble. And we really didn't have anything other than we got a crack in our windshield going through Canada. Did you, um, in your pre-planning stage, um, come up with a daily budget? Honestly, uh, 
we didn't really have a specific budget at all. It's it's sort of tough to explain, but our general thought process on long-term travel is that if it's done carefully, it can come out costing you essentially none of your savings. And that's sort of our goal when we do things like this national park trip or our previous trip spending six months in Hawaii. So the, the idea for us is set up some savings ahead of time. So you have a cushion, so you feel good, like nothing's going to bankrupt you no matter what happens. And then go on the road, set up several streams of income that you feel pretty comfortable with and try your best to just come home with at least as much money as you set out with. And so uh, we actually just finished up all the calculations of the total cost of this trip and how much we made while we were on the trip. And it turns out that we did just that this time. Without setting a specific budget for ourselves, we wanted to be flexible. We did end up coming home with a total net worth a little higher than what we set out with because of those streams of income and just being sort of conscious about money along the way. We did spend a lot on eating out. Normally, we don't eat out very much when we're at home. We do more cooking. We did have a small camp stove um, with us, uh, which we did use. Uh, in the more remote areas and when we were um, sometimes in the parks camping uh, where that was allowed. But um, a lot of times it was easier because we were traversing so much. You know, you're in a new city all the time. There's eateries on every corner. Um, it, it oftentimes was just a lot easier to pick up something, you know, a quick bite um, on the road. And so uh, we tried to stick to healthier options, but eating out was definitely one of our bigger spending categories. So you set out on a seven-month road trip without specifically saying, all right, we're going to spend $3,000 a month? Uh, yeah, that's correct. The, the only like pre-calculation we did money-wise was I made a very broad estimate of what the total trip would cost from front mm -hmm. to back, uh -huh. uh, assuming kind of like the worst-case scenario, like what if, you know, more than half the time we couldn't sleep in the van because it was just miserable somehow or, and we had to get hotels? Or what if we ate every single meal out, which we almost kind of did, probably 80% of them we did. But we, we set up sort of a worst case scenario number and we said, hey, if for some reason we had to spend that amount of money on this trip and our income streams uh, didn't pan out quite as well as we thought, would we be okay? Would we come home from the trip totally regretting it? Or would we be financially afloat? And we would be fine if that were the case, mostly thanks to the fact that we are very frugal when we live at home. Um, our goal in general is to save more than 50% of our income at all times while we're working full time. So we really had a cushion that made us feel comfortable enough to not set a budget. And I think by not setting a budget for a vacation, uh, sometimes you can actually spend less if you're a money conscious type of person, because if you set a specific budget for a vacation, you're almost always going to just find a way to spend that exact amount of money. You can basically spend an unlimited amount of money on vacation. But by just being conscious and thinking of it more as a lifestyle change and that this is regular life for us, I think we stayed money conscious the whole time and it probably saved us money to not have a budget. But if somebody wanted to duplicate what you've done and go on the road for six months or seven or eight months, what would you suggest they do in terms of trying to figure out a budget? I mean, obviously, you have to come up with a, uh, a dollar figure, or at least I know I would want to know what the dollar figure is just to feel comfortable that I'm, I'm you know, 
not going over budget. Absolutely. So we just figured out all the actual numbers of what we spent and posted a blog post in great detail about all the finances. But to give you the super short of like what turned out to be true, to visit all 61 of the national parks in seven months while mostly sleeping in a van, although we had to get hotels for a good five or six weeks total out of that, that ended up costing us just short of $37,000 in total. Not, not a small amount of money. It's not a small amount of money, but uh, there's a couple things that I would add to that that maybe would add some encouragement for others to try. Number one is that that's spread out over a seven-month period, and it includes our total all-in life costs. I mean, I included health insurance, private health insurance plans we had to buy. I included um, you know, food, lodging in the form of the van, uh, cell phone service, hosting for our blog site. I mean, I included everything in there. So that's the total all-in cost for seven months for two people to live. So when you look at that compared to what someone might spend at home, a couple of adults, um, you know, just maybe middle-class American adults for seven months, I don't think it's an outstanding amount of money. The other thing is that we recalculated the figure uh, because what we found when we put together the final numbers was that the largest spending category by a long shot was the special plane rides that you have to get to get to some of the most remote parks like American Samoa, Hawaii, and especially the small bush planes that you have to essentially rent out all on your own with no other passengers in Alaska. Right. Gates of Arctic. Absolutely. (laughs) So uh, we redid the calculation, figuring out uh, what this trip would have cost if we just cut out the 12 most expensive parks to access, which means cutting out all of Alaska, Hawaii, American Samoa, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. And if we cut out those 12 parks represented by those areas, uh, the trip budget dropped by 41%. Uh, And so, honestly, when you think about that in the scope of the time period, the fact that it's an all-in living cost for two people, I think this trip is a lot more affordable than people might give it credit for. And I would really encourage other people to give it a try. Yeah, no, for sure. If you take out those those airline costs and the, the bush plane costs, that, that would really reduce it. And so if somebody wanted to stick to the um, uh, lower 48, uh, as it were, um, it'd probably be a lot more affordable for many people. Was your, your $12,000 um, van cost uh, figured into that thirty seven? Yes, it, it is included. Um, but the net cost of the van is what's included. So we've purchased the van for 12300 the current market value of the van is somewhere in the vicinity of $8,000, and we are going to sell it very soon. Um, so the net cost, depreciation-wise, was around $4,300. And then uh, there were also some maintenance costs. Like, obviously, we got many, many oil changes, and we had to do some other stuff to the van along the way, although it wasn't too bad. I think the total net cost of ownership of that van over the course of the trip was like, 5000 to $5,500, something like that. Nice. Very nice. Now, um, favorite parks. I mean, what, what did you come away with in, in visiting these, these parks um, in terms of what your expectations were and what the realities played out to and, and where you would definitely make a trip plan to go back to? Yeah, so there are a few areas where I wish we had more time. Um, the Grand Canyon is a good example of that. Um, we had spent all day. Uh, it was earlier in the season. So there was still a good amount of snowpack on the trails. You couldn't go 
um, down into the canyon at all. So it was a little bit of a limited experience. And we planned to stay the night in the park, um, but Stephen got sick and we had to drive back into Flagstaff. So, you know, little things like that happened where I, you know, because we were also only going to um, the 61 National Park units, you know, we did skip some areas that I think would be worthwhile, like the Greater Glen Canyon area uh, there by the Grand Canyon. And so that's an area that I think would be um, on our list of definitely wanting to go back and visit. Uh, we spent about a month in total um, visiting all the Alaska parks, and that was well worth it. You know, for us, that experience, uh, because it was summer and the daylight was pretty much constant, we actually found ourselves going to the parks almost in the middle of the night. I think we were at Denali at midnight and um, hiking, and that was uh, a completely uh, unique experience in that we were the only people there, and you still had complete visibility and, and beautiful views to yourself. So that was a, an experience I always remember for sure. And you, you drove your van up to Alaska. Correct. And parked it someplace. <laughs> so it's actually kind of a funny story getting to Alaska. We were in Washington, I think Seattle, and we were getting ready to go to Alaska and do the eight national parks that are there. And uh, we actually figured out that it would be cheaper to fly to uh, where Juneau and then take a small plane to go see Glacier Bay National Park, then mm -hmm. fly back to Juneau, then back to Seattle, and then drive our van up to Alaska to see the other seven parks on our list, then, then to drive first. Like, in other words, it was actually cheaper to fly to Alaska, fly back to the lower 48, and then drive up because of the fact that you have to get to that park by plane anyway. Uh, so that's what we ended up doing. So that was kind of a funny story. But we did do a lot of driving in Alaska. We drove all the way up through British Columbia, the Alaska Highway through the Yukon, and drove the main roads going uh, to Fairbanks. When we did get to the Arctic and Kobuk Valley, we actually drove up the Dalton um, quite a bit to get to, uh, they call it an airport, but it's basically an airstrip off the highway that we parked and got picked up and uh, flown into a small village that's off of the road system that then took us into uh, Gates of the Arctic and Kobuk Valley. And so we did that and then came back down on the way down. We went through Denali, down into Anchorage, and then uh, drove down into Seward and Homer. So there was still a lot of driving in Alaska. <laughs> I bet. Do you remember um, the most you had to pay for gas in the least? Uh, yeah, we actually recorded that. Um, I don't, I, I, I've, I'm saving those figures for a future blog post somewhere, but I think if I had to estimate our top gas price was in Alaska and it was around 550 or 560 a gallon. And then the lowest gas price, I'm pretty sure, don't quote me on this, was in South Carolina. And it was definitely under $2 a gallon. Suggestions for anyone who wants to try and duplicate your... Uh... Trek. You know, I think the way that we did our van was a really affordable way to go about it. A lot of people get really excited about modifying a van and, and Steve and I are both not super handy people. So for us, we wanted it to be kind of cheap and quick and uh, solve the issue of where do we sleep and, and where do we put our stuff. Um, and so kind of approaching it from that perspective versus making it a 
a, like a tiny home on wheels, basically did make a quite a bit of difference. You know, for us, we only used our van for sleeping and for driving and the world was kind of where we did our living. And that I think made the trip a little more sustainable in that way. You know, I think if I spent more time in the van, it would kind of drive you a little crazy, Um, you know, but kind of using it for only what we needed to made it, made it more realistic And so, you know, that van in particular gets really good gas mileage. And that was a huge factor for us as well, given how much driving we were going to be doing, you know, but I I think, you know, it it, it was helpful to have someone on the road with you. Um, I don't think I would want to do it, do that extensive of a trip myself. And so I appreciated that, you know, we each had company while we were driving um, and, you know, having a creative project that you completed along the way for us, that was the photography part of it. It really gave us um, a reason to seek out and, and do more in each park, you know, going to a park like Hot Springs or Gateway Arch, where it's not the same kind of experience as you might have in Yosemite or um, Death Valley, but, you know, we still wanted to approach it with that uh, creative perspective and how do we make this translate as uh, what it is, a, you know, a unique part of our history. So are you planning your next trip or are you going to lay low for a while and recover? Right now, our plan is just to sort of stay in Florida and get some work done. I'm going back to my same job full time. And, uh, you know, we really are going to work hard to tell our stories on this blog. Um, Lauren's been doing a ton of work on the blog. And, uh, yeah, that's our plan for now. Nothing really big on the horizon yet, but I'm sure there will be something. We have a few ideas, but uh, right now we don't even have our furniture moved into our house yet. So um, that's kind of first order of business for us uh, is kind of getting back into the routine we had here. And then I'm sure very quickly we'll figure out uh, the next adventure. We've been visiting today with Lauren and Stephen Keyes, who uh, took uh, most of the year off uh, to go on a 34,000-mile trek across the National Park System. It sounds like a wonderful adventure, guys. Um, I appreciate your time today with us. For any listeners out there who want to catch up on where they went and how they did it and some of the sites they've seen, check out their website, tripofalifestyle.com. Thanks so much for joining us today, Lauren and Steve. Thank you. Thanks so much. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles from Key West, just very well might be the most remote national park in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, kayaking, and relaxing on pristine beaches. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com.
Straddling the geographic divide that splits the Mojave Desert from an element of the Sonoran Desert, Joshua Tree National Park in California is a geologic and botanical showcase that also is a climber's gymnasium. But it also can be an unforgiving landscape, one that has claimed more than a few lives. The desert beauty is the main attraction for most heading to Joshua Tree. From the contorted and spiky Joshua trees and the flame-red blossoms of the octillo to the choya bushes with their barbed spikes that you won't soon forget if you get too close. The park has two decidedly different desert settings that are responsible for the diverse vegetation. The northern half of the park is laid down across a portion of the Mojave Desert, while the southern half covers part of the Colorado Desert, which itself is a component of the larger Sonoran Desert. A rough dividing line between the Mojave and Colorado deserts in the park is Wilson Canyon, through which the Pinto Basin Road runs. The Mojave is a higher, cooler desert than the Colorado Desert, and more attractive to Joshua trees, Mojave yuccas, even pinyon pines, scrub oaks, and junipers. The Colorado Desert lies below 3,000 feet in elevation and is hotter than the Mojave. This setting is more favorable for choya, octillo, and creosote bush. The Joshua trees certainly deserve the attention they receive. Despite their thick trunks and contorted branches capped by spikes of green, these trees once were thought to be members of the lily family. In the end, though, botanists settled on the yucca as the lineage of the Joshua trees. And that name? That descends from the Church of Latter-day Saints, also known as the Mormons. As they headed south from the Salt Lake Valley in Utah, Missionaries encountered these unique-looking trees near present-day St. George, Utah, and seeing a form of supplication in their shape, named them Joshua trees. So many plant species, 813 species of vascular plants according to park officials, live in this seemingly harsh landscape that one name under consideration for the park once was Desert Plants National Park. Joshua Tree started out as a national monument in 1936 when President Franklin Delano Roosevelt set it aside to protect not just its namesake trees, but the other desert flora and fauna found here. While FDR set aside 825,340 acres for the monument, 14 years later Congress came back and transferred 289,500 acres out of the monument and back into the public domain for mining and grazing. In 1994, however, the California Desert Protection Act returned that land to the monument and redesignated Joshua Tree as a national park. Then, between 1999 and 2000, another 25,000 acres of land within the park's boundaries that had been privately owned were added to the park as part of the purchase by the federal government and the Wildland Conservancy. Though the park might appear too rough and rugged to sustain life, people have been living in and around the area for at least 5,000 years, according to the National Park Service. Perhaps leaving the greatest impact on the landscape were prospectors. In his book, The National Parks, Freeman Tilden wrote that, The jackass prospector has gophered everywhere among the hills. Some rich finds were made, but in most cases, the ores were not rich enough to pay for hauling them to faraway mills for reduction. Cattlemen came to the park in the later half of the 19th century to graze their cattle and tap springs to water them. What can you do at Joshua Tree? The geologic rubble in varying stages of decomposition makes Joshua Tree a frequent destination for those who enjoy bouldering or honing their skills on granite walls and outcrops. Youngsters are drawn to the mazes of some of these boulder fields for games of hide-and-seek, 
While campers seeking a weekend reprieve from the city and work find the campgrounds with their rock backdrops perfect. Those geologic outcrops, by the way, got their start deep underground via volcanic machinations. It was the upward pumping of monzo granite, a particular form of molten rock, that eventually gave birth to the landscape that now greets visitors. Geologic fault zones are key to Joshua Tree, for they bring life-saving water to the surface in the form of springs. These springs, in turn, create oases that nourish vegetation and wildlife. The Pinto Mountain Fault wraps the northwestern lobe of the park. The San Andreas Fault undercuts the southern boundary, and the Blue Cut Fault traverses the center of the park from west to east. Of the 158 desert fan palm oases in North America, five are located within the National Park. Among the most notable oases at Joshua Tree is the 49 Palms Oasis. Another is the Oasis of Mara at the Visitor Center in 29 Palms that marks the Pinto Mountain Fault. Bighorn sheep, gambles quail, and coyotes are among the wildlife drawn to these oases. Joshua Tree is also a great destination for birders any time of the year. Depending on the season, you might see roadrunners, mockingbirds, a variety of wren species, raptors such as kestrels and red-tailed hawks, dark-eyed juncos, orioles, bluebirds, and even robins. There are eight front country campgrounds, nine when you consider the Sheep Pass group campground in Joshua Tree National Park. That might not seem like many for a park of nearly 800,000 acres, but combined, they offer nearly 500 campsites. Just one campground, Cottonwood, is in the southern section of the park. All the rest, White Tank, Bell, Jumbo Rocks, Ryan, Sheep Pass, Hidden Valley, Indian Cove, and Black Rock are somewhat squeezed into the northern half above Wilson Canyon. Campfires are indeed nice, but all vegetation in the park is protected. As a result, if you want to relax before a flickering campfire at day's end, you need to bring your own wood to burn. Hiking amid the oddly shaped Joshua trees, past clusters of cacti, and through mazes of rock rewards with both wonders right in front of your eyes, as well as gorgeous far-off vistas. But you need to be prepared for wandering in this desert scape. Getting lost or suffering from the heat are two very real scenarios, and you must guard against them. Good maps, plenty of water, and shielding from the sun, and letting folks know where you're heading are elements of your hike not to be overlooked. As spectacular as the days can be in the park, so too are the nights. As flames from campfires leap skyward as day ends, the park's night skies take over, revealing the cosmos in spectacular clarity thanks to the relative lack of light pollution at this international dark sky park. Joshua Tree is a fascinating national park, one best visited during the winter months when the temperatures have moderated from summer's highs in the triple digits. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org.
And now, a commentary. It has been mentioned so often that it seemingly has lost its impact. The National Park Service is roughly $12 billion behind in maintaining its infrastructure. And maybe numbness to that staggering backlog is why Park Service planners are continuing to plan capital projects. Of course, it's really not the Park Service's fault. The agency is mandated to preserve the incredible places throughout the national park system and the resources, and to provide for recreation and interpretation for visitors. And with the recent year's trend of increasing visitation, there are demands and needs to build anew. Still, doesn't it give anyone pause that the Park Service is more than likely looking to spend tens of millions of dollars, and possibly much, much more, on new projects while that $12 billion maintenance backlog continues to dangle overhead and possibly grow larger. Most recently, the Park Service spent about $6 million to build a bridge over the Brooks River at Katmai National Park and Preserve in Alaska. That spendy decision went against a previous decision to move all human facilities from the north side of the river over to the south side. Ray Bain was superintendent of Katmai at the time the relocation was proposed. He said the relocation was, quote, in keeping with findings and recommendations of research carried out by wildlife biologists of the Katmai General Management Plan and fundamental resource management standards of the National Park Service, unquote. In light of Katmai's maintenance backlog of about $10 million, might a more prudent capital decision have been made, one that followed the park's general management plan and the biologist's recommendations and at the same time reduce the park's own maintenance backlog? Look out across the national park system, and among the projects currently being considered or recently approved include the relocation of headquarters of Chesapeake and Ohio Canal National Historical Park, along with a new visitor center in Maryland, the redevelopment of the United States Park Police Horse Stables on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., the expansion of the Trails Network at Prince William Forest Park in Virginia, and, most recently, the beginning of public discussion of an upgrade for the Kantishna and Wonder Lake areas of Denali National Park. That's just a small sampling of the project planning that goes on throughout the national park system. Trying to find estimated project dollars for these projects is not easy, but the words that seem to be cropping up more and more once a figure is estimated are development is dependent on funding, or something similar. It's reflective of the Park Service's recognition that just because they go through the effort of planning something, that doesn't mean Congress will come through with the dollars to make it happen. Of course, the Park Service still encounters the costs of that planning effort. What the folks at Denali say with their Kantishna proposal is that they currently don't know what the alternatives will cost, and until they closely analyze those costs, they won't settle on a predetermined path, which is good. But should parks even be considering multi-million dollar capital projects unless and until Congress provides the funds to make significant inroads into that $12 billion maintenance backlog? There is legislation pending in Congress to provide $6.5 billion over five years to help chew away at that big number. But similar legislation died in the last Congress and there's no guarantee this measure will reach the president's desk. Paul Anderson is a retired veteran of more than four decades with the National Park Service, including 11 years as Denali superintendent. 
As he and I discussed the Kentishna project, he told me Park Service officials need to seriously weigh new projects against their maintenance backlog and inadequate annual funding. At Denali, by the way, its backlog number is nearly $52 million. Anderson went on to tell me that the Park Service is always good at building infrastructure. The problem, he added, is that once we're done with a capital project, we don't have the money to take care of it. And that's where the maintenance backlog comes from. To illustrate those words, the former superintendent pointed to a backcountry management plan that he had a hand in developing for Denali. Initially, the park received funds to hire four or five staff to handle the actual backcountry management when it came to resources and protection. Now, however, to the best of his knowledge, there's just one person working in the backcountry. Anderson acknowledges that in the case of Kantishna, some of the proposed work would serve the natural resources well by establishing official, well-constructed hiking trails and eliminating numerous social trails that skitter across the landscape and cause erosion problems. While that's good to know, at the end of the day, there is a serious budget problem that the Park Service continues to struggle with. And unless some tough decisions are made, it's only going to get worse. For National Parks Traveler, this is Kurt Rebencheck. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.